The following contains adult language, content, and descriptions of actions not suitable for children. Listener discretion is advised. Guru Presario Media presents the Guru Presario Podcast, starring me, Mal Sanchez. The word entrepreneur gets thrown around a lot, but it's defined by very few. Join me as I sit down with those that I've come to know, and through the art of conversation, we can all learn a little something from the nature of our work. Let's start the show. All righty, episode 30 of the uh, Guru Presario podcast. I'm here with Lee Merritt. Uh, drove down from Dallas this morning, yeah? Glad to have you, Lee. I'm gonna let you um, let you kind of introduce yourself to the uh, to the audience. Let us know kind of your background, and then we'll we'll jump in it. Okay. At my at my leisure. At your leisure, okay, my friend. Okay, great. Well, my name is Lee Merritt. I'm a civil rights attorney, and I'm running for Texas Attorney General. I am um, originally from California. I have a background as a uh, educator. Actually, I, be- I began my educational career in Camden, New Jersey, at the time that the most dangerous city in America, notoriously. I went there because I thought that that was where I was most needed as a uh, young black inner city educator. Uh, I, I liked the challenge. I had a great time uh, uh, in Camden, but I found that there were limitations on what I could do for my community, um, and particularly around the area of housing, which is where I got my start as an organizer, helping uh, in the classroom, teaching students, but then uh, taking on some uh, community concerns in, in terms of affordable housing. Um, and ran into some roadblocks, long story short, and want to go back to law school to get a better education in civil rights. I got my degree in law school. I became, um, joined the Cochrane firm in Philadelphia initially, and I wanted to take that training to where I thought civil rights workers were needed the most, and that's what brought me to Texas. How'd you get into the Cochrane <laughs> firm, man? Oh, well, um, I, I actually interned for the Cochrane firm as a young kid. I, I'm sorry, as a, as a law student. But grew up admiring Johnny Cochran. Um, grew up during the trial of the century. It was really one of my, one of my major inspirations for wanting to become a civil rights attorney and a, a people's advocate. And so watched that firm uh, as it grew throughout the years, and was really honored to be able to have that as my first job out of law school. Amazing, amazing. Um, Camden, New Jersey. Tell me a little about Camden. What what what's the difficulty there? Well, uh, I I I left Morehouse in Atlanta, Georgia, uh, two thousand five. And I wanted to teach in an inner city community where I could um, uh, imp- uh, work on closing the educational achievement gap. And so I asked them, uh, where was I most needed? And Camden at the time was the poorest city in America. Uh, it's right there on the border of Philadelphia. Uh, it, it was an economically depressed city, uh, but a city full of culture, um, mostly Puerto Rican and Dominican in terms of the population, one of the largest concentrations of Puerto Rican and Dominican populations on the East Coast. And so it took me out of my comfort zone. More than New York, the city? Uh, the city itself, per yeah. capita, right? Okay. And, and that's the other tricky thing. Camden is the most dangerous city in America, not because they have the most violent crimes, but because it's such a small city with nothing else going on, right? right. And so per capita, uh, one of the largest concentrations of uh, Puerto Rican and uh, uh, Dominican. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. I appreciate the insight and the background, and I know our audience definitely does. Um, I want to I want to jump in it because right you're running for can- you're a candidate for Texas Attorney General. That's right. Um, there's some motivation obviously that kind of goes behind that. I want to learn a little about that. Sure. Well, I, 
advocating for families in Texas, I I, I really found um, that that there was such a huge need, an organizational need, a, a civil liberties protection need in, in Texas. And so, uh, I, I, one of my first major cases was in the city of Fort Worth, and just some of the institutional problems. It's one thing to see, you know, an officer or someone um, involved in misconduct or a constitutional violation. It's another thing to see a system built around it that insulates malfeasance, that insulates bad policing, that insulates uh, policies that are detrimental to community growth. And so um, uh, fighting people like Ken Paxton for on issues of transparency and access to, to resources for our communities, uh, I found myself banging my head against a wall for a while, and I realized that we needed better people in that position. And so I, I honestly began looking for folks who would be willing to take on that role and uh, folks that I could uh, support. And there weren't a lot of people standing up. Democrats have struggled finding uh, quality candidates for that office. Mind you, I think that there was a great, a phenomenal candidate in Justin Nelson, a Harvard graduate, um, someone who has uh, um, some civil rights background as well in the last election. Uh, but he was he didn't have the platform or the movement behind him uh, to to generate enough support to overcome someone like Ken Paxton with the name recognition and the support of his party. Um, and so I, I decided that I that I could run myself. Yeah. Um, tell me tell me a little about the support that you ca- that you have that um, that gives, you know, people like myself a little hope. Well, I've been working in the area of civil rights around the country for uh, most of my career. Uh, if we look at even within the last year, I thought it was sort of a climax of uh, some of the, the struggles that we've been engaging in. They call it a national reckoning on police reform. And we were able to, you know, speak with people on both sides of the aisle. We were able to meet with the Trump White House and meet with William Barr and uh, some of the um, law enforcement leaders from around the country and begin to look at things that we agree on. It turns out there's a lot more than we agree on than folks understand, but we're right. not allowed to have those conversations. Um, we spoke before the United States Senate and um, that conversation about policing and accountability and reform took center stage in the country. And we found that, um, when I say we, my law firm found that the nation was looking to us for leadership. They were looking for us to, for best practices and policies because we had built a niche as um, uh, people who could work on in places like Texas and work with Republican leaders and work with Democratic leaders. Um, and so uh, o- over the year, we, we, we built up. Uh, not only a social media following of hundreds and thousands of, uh, of followers and supporters, but a nationwide network of activists. Um, and, and you will be surprised. One of the people that I would list as uh, someone that we work with, for example, is the president of the state, or the chief of the state troopers, Chief uh, Steve McGraw. And he and I have, have developed a relationship over the years because when something terrible happens in Texas, it's, it's he and I who are having the conversation. And it, like I said, we found that, for example, uh, we agree that law enforcement officers shouldn't be responding to mental health calls, right? right? That's that's not what they should be doing, and they're overwhelmed by it, and it's impacting not only the community but the profession itself. And, and we've come up with uh, solutions that we think actually work. Right, right. Um, you obviously have a lot of experience in that ground uh, in terms of policing the right way, disciplining police in the right manner. Um, what are the disconnections that maybe maybe it's in Texas, right? Or maybe you could give us insight to the United States in general. But what are some of the disconnects that do not allow a police department to properly implement policies or or create a um, a culture that is really there for protecting citizens of that state? 
What's the myth that being tough on crime is anti-people, essentially? It's, it's, the, it's the idea that in order to maintain law and order, uh, that we have to uh, use tactics that are, are, are militarized, that, uh, that we can't deal with, for example, the crack pandemic, which was a major feature of the growth of our, our, current, judi- our, our current criminal justice system, the same way that we're trying at least to deal with the opioid crisis, which was with compassion and resources. Um, I, I think when we we're able to change the narrative of when we start stop looking at communities as hostile combatants and look at them as, all right, this is a community in need who has a very specific um, sort of catalyst for their problem. Let's address the problem uh, with, with tactics that work, not with mantras or rhetoric that fuel our base. Uh, I honestly think more than anything, if we had a proper discussion, the, the, for example, again, if we, the reason we see such different tactics in the opioid crisis than we did with the crap pandemic is because the language that we use around it is this is a mental health emergency, not a public safety emergency. We didn't criminalize the children of, of, of opioid addicts. Right. Right. Um, and so I think the language has a lot to do with it. Right. Um, is there, is there a disconnect with these? So most recently the, um, the city had voted on a proposition, I think it was proposition B which was... Um, when you say the city, what city? Or city of San Antonio, okay. um, specifically because there's a, there's a contract with the police union that, um, that pretty much limits, I guess, what the police chief can do in terms of disciplinary action. Mm-hmm. I think uh, the city of San Antonio, there is some history there of rehiring police officers that have been toxic to the department. And, 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 I'm, and I'm sure that there's, there's language out there where the chief talks about this, but where he's kind of handcuffed in that manner. Do you, do you have any insight in terms of cities that are dealing with those contracts with the police union? Yeah. Um, and so I mentioned going up to the white house, uh, last year and speaking with, uh, the Trump white house and William Barr, who was the, uh, U S attorney general at the time. And, um, the, the other feature in the room, besides the nine families that I brought with me, including family of Ahmaud Arbery and both Jean, Damian Daniels, a lot of Texas families were there. Uh, was the police union uh, captains. And where we found agreement, where William Barr and and, Tim, and Senator Tim Scott and I found agreement, the police unions were there to say, no, there's no way we're ending qualified immunity. You know, that'll flood our, our departments with litigation, which, you know, <laughs> we, we pointed out later in the Senate discussion that that's the problem, right. that if, if, if allowing the law to uh, apply equally to police officers would flood our courtrooms and clog our, our courtroom system, that means that we have a real problem. That means that we are, in fact, uh, you know, what the data bears out, the deadliest police culture in the modern world. We are, you know, that 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 the largest prison and population uh, population in human history right. <laughs> has, in fact, become a problem. Um, uh, but but yeah, those those unions um, and those contracts, uh, the collective bargaining agreements, is one of the, one of the biggest detriments that I find to police accountability and actual reform. And, it, and it, it ties the hands of progressive law enforcement officers. So when they want to do the right thing, the unions step in and say, no, uh, um, you know, we're going to protect our officers above the rights of the citizens. And, and again, the, the attorney general's office being the lead law enforcement office, uh, not only lead law enforcement office, but the lead uh, negotiator in the state of Texas can come in and say, you know, these contracts don't work for our communities. These contracts don't actually serve the outcomes that we're looking for. And we, we definitely need to go in and, and begin to re, uh, renegotiate and, some, and in some cases pull out of those contracts altogether. Right. I agree on that. Um, 
the attorney general's office has various responsibilities, right, to the uh, to the citizens of of the state. Yep. Um, tell us a little about that. Maybe some of the disconnects that currently the uh, the office of Ken Paxton has with the actual with the actual narrative that's there. Absolutely. I love to talk about the power of that office because the truth is there's virtually no aspects of Texas life that the attorney general's office doesn't touch. That's a 4,000 employee office, a $1.26 billion budget, a 750 lawyers, 37 divisions. Uh, it, and I think the time that we all felt the, the sort of the negligence universally occurring in that office was just last February during the winter storm. Uh, we have remained locked into contracts with ERCOT uh, that pass on cost to consumers, that uh, maintain a grid uh, that is on the fritz, that can't stand up to the slightest weather change, and weather change is real, climate change is real. Um, and so there's so much work that can be done through the Office of Attorney General. Uh, we, we, we often think about criminal justice reform, which is a, a division and an important division, uh, but it's just one of the uh, the 37 divisions. That office can, can be used to finally deal with the issue of property taxes in Texas. In Texas, we pay more than a third in property taxes than the rest of the nation. And it's because we have uh, negotiated for businesses to come to Texas, and we've attracted you know multi-billion dollar corporations. We continue. I'm excited about Tesla's, Tesla's presence in, in Texas and uh, uh, what that might mean to renew, re- renewable en- energy. Uh but we, we give them breaks and we pass the cost on to people. And it's, you know, it's nice to live somewhere where there's no income tax. Uh, but if we're not finding a greater tax base to cover all the other uh, public services that we need, and, and again, working through the attorney general's office to ensure that businesses are paying their fair share, we end up stuck in a, in a system that serves corporations at the cost of people. Definitely understand that. Um, we know that the attorney general's office does work closely with the governor's office, correct? Um, hypothetically, right. hypothetically, correct, correct. Um, there, are, there are some announcements, right? Beto's going to run for Texas governor. I haven't heard of many. Has he more. announced it yet? I, I don't know if he's okay. announced it. Maybe <laughs> it's a rumor, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, what, what do you see in that hunt? And in hindsight, what do you see with that in terms of hey, if if there is a candidate that's going to run that you could work next to, great. Give us some insight of that. Or if not, if you know, if if. Uh, Governor Abbott gets reelected. How are you going to work through that? Sure. How are you going to navigate those fields? Well, first, we've been um, having a Republican attorney general and governor in Texas since like the last time the Cowboys won the Super Bowl. <laughs> and so um, under Republican leadership, we've seen uh, that office being abused to push a far right wing conservative agenda. Right now, there have been lawsuits filed against our public school system. Six of our public schools right. were, were recently sued so that they couldn't institute the CDC uh, recommended. Right, to protect children. <laughs> right, protect uh, children. Uh, during, during, a, during a deadly pandemic. Right. Uh, so uh, the attorney general's office should be being used to do the opposite. You think the AG steps in during times of national emergency right. and they come up with a plan to protect Texans. But instead, we're pushing this conservative agenda that doesn't help anybody. They're being hyper-political, right. I think, in, in the sense of their position. And that that AG, the top cop, should be telling the you know the governor, um, all right, you know we have this this program that we're trying to run on behalf of the Republicans and our conservative agenda, but we have to be constrained by the the limits of the Constitution. There is no constitutional cop in our government, right? There is no one saying, hey, you know, uh, 
setting bounty hunters out on Texas women is probably not a good thing. Right. Not only is it morally wrong, but it's constitutionally unsound. I, I can't believe no one had that conversation with the Texas legislator or the governor in 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 many of his gubernatorial overreach, right? from the border to um, telling businesses that they shouldn't social distance in order right. to, you know, there, there's there's so many issues that could have been resolved if the if the governor's office simply had someone saying, look, the Constitution is actually a real thing and applies to in Texas, right. right? It's the Lone Star State, but we still operate under the, under the United States Constitution right. in our own Constitution. Um I could work with any governor uh, to do that. You know, I, I I would love to see a progressive governor so that we could go after policies that I think would be better for Texans, and that's what we're fighting for. It, you know, we, you mentioned Beto O'Rourke. He and I have worked and, and talked about the worked together and talked about the importance of protecting voters, voter registration, getting people to participate in the system. I think if we if we, if the if we pay attention to what the data is telling us, and particularly the census data from 2020. Uh, the vast majority of Texans want to see a more progressive agenda from the government. Uh, from the government, uh, but we need more participation in the system. Uh, if we had more participation in the system in the last election for attorney general, it was decided by less than four percent, three point six percent of the vote. Um, it it uh, so I, I like anybody, including Matthew McConaughey, that would get, <laughs> that would encourage people to participate in the system, to show up in the elections. Because if we show up in, uh, in the elections, the people of Texas, their voice will be heard. And we can start to deal with long, long-term long systemic issues in Texas uh, that, ha- that have been set aside for a far-right-wing agenda. Uh, but I, I can also see that office being used to, to check some of the uh, conservative power. If Abbott is able to maintain that office— then we need some sort of checks and balances in place. We need uh, a, a attorney general who you can be. And I know it's this hard to believe, but you can be bipartisan in that position. It is a law office, right? You know? Right. Uh, it, it's not actually designed to do what Kim Paxton is doing, which is sue other states on behalf of Donald Trump. You right. know, uh, uh, those those kind of uh, priorities is not the priorities for most Texans. Right. And and I and. Um, I'm excited about the the gubernatorial race and who who runs, uh, but I think we have a real chance to win at, at at the AG's race, and that's true for all the positions. If we show up, I think Democrats can win; they could run the gambit. Uh, but certainly, this office is vulnerable in that we need someone in place that will serve as a a, a, a an advocate for the constitutional rights of Texans. Right. What do you um, specifically? We talked about right. There's a, there was a three point six percent gap on that. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of people out there, and I and I bring this up all the time when I have someone. I had Diego Bernal recently, um, a few others, but I bring it up. You know, what do you say to those individuals, specifically the younger guys? Because I I was that guy, where I didn't believe in the voting system, and I and I felt like you know whatever I did really didn't matter. Mm-hmm. What do you have to say to to those to those young that I would say the younger generation, right? I've met some older folks too, but yeah. I've gotten lectured by the older folks more yeah. than the younger guys. Yeah. What do you say to them? Man? I think they call them Gen Zs now. Probably. Yeah. And um, what the census data has told us is that their participation in the voting process and the elections has actually grown. We're hard on Gen Z, but they were the largest group. 18 to 22 was the largest growth. It grew by 6% more than any other uh, uh, dynamic in Texas. So they're, they're paying attention and they're tuned in. We have to get the message to them. we got to show up to the college campuses. We need to uh, sh- uh, show up to the high schools even and begin to inform them both about their rights and about how our government works. Now, uh, there are forces even within uh, the current Texas leadership that was trying to prevent. Yep. Tell us, okay, tell us a little about that. 
uh, about uh, uh, how our even our education system is under attack. Yeah. Um, we'll start with, and I don't know that people fully appreciate this, but my background is as an educator. I started uh, Teach for America under out of uh, undergrad. And um, what I learned and the reason I came to Texas, I came to Texas first as a Dallas ISD recruiter. Um, I'm, rec- I'm trying to attract educators to, to Texas. One out of 10 students in all of America are educated right here in Texas. And, w- and how education goes in Texas, it will go for the rest of the country. Why? Because publishers have understood that these huge uh, school systems in Texas, Harris County, Dallas County, Bear County, uh, these ho- huge school systems in Texas set, set the market standard. You know, um, it, it starts off west here in Texas and moves throughout the rest of the country. So whatever we allow in our books, whatever random, uh, and, I, and I, I call it random uh, agitation of, of the language that we've been hearing most recently is CRT. I'm not sure what that is as an educator. Like, I know what they're calling it, but I recently saw a principal in Grand Prairie um, uh, suspended and and potentially terminated uh, because he sent a letter out to his students about them dealing with George Floyd, right? Which is wow. which is something that we all dealt with as a community. You know how that how how seeing that kind of thing impacted them, and you know ways that they could they could deal with it and avoid that kind of thing happening in their communities. And they said, "Well, that's CRT." <laughs> you right. know, that's for crit- the audience that doesn't. It's that's critical, critical racial. Ra- theory. Yeah, that's that's yeah. critical race theory, um, and and we've seen it at a local level where there's a groundswell of. So there's new Tea Party, new Trumpian movement that anything that is talking about progress or unity or growth uh, and tolerance, uh, diversity include. I actually heard on Fox recently someone said, you know, diversity inclusion is the new code language for leftist liberal communist takeover. And no one's like, no, diversity inclusion means still diversity. It's the U.S. <laughs> and, it's the U.S. for diversity right. and inclusive. Right, right, right. right. I agree. So, I agree. Um, and so, yeah. Ground zero for the fight for Texas, it starts with education, and conservatives realize that, and they're trying to push an agenda that's not even a popular agenda, but it's certainly popular among their base, and our, our, our uh, classrooms are on the battleground now, and it, again, we need an attorney general who will protect our teachers, protect our students, um, in a way, it, it won't, more importantly, just won't use them as a political pawn. We want to get resources to our school, we want to ensure they have safe um, and, and fully funded learning environments. Politics shouldn't be in the uh, in, in the game of what our students learn about history, for example. I agree. Um, there are there are two big things in the news, and I do want to bring these up before before we're polling out of here, right? We got a lunch in here soon, but um, two big things happening in Texas, right? One of them was, and and I'm a gun advocate, right? I may not seem like it, <laughs> but I do want to get your take on. Where your position on kind of how you see this whole this new movement that happened in Texas, where it was it's uh, anybody could carry, yeah, not necessarily need to be licensed. I highly uh, I recommend you're educated or or know some type of fundamental um, process in terms of being a carry a person who carries. But what are your views? Is is this the right move for the state or? I I, I've recently uh, become. Um, I wouldn't call it a gun enthusiast. I'm a gun owner. Yeah. I, I take my kids to the gun range. I want them to learn about gun safety. Um, uh, I, I think there's a cultural aspect to it, certainly a hunting culture that that, that I think that uh, we both should respect and I'm interested right. in learning more about. But we have to deal with the reality that, you know, America is number one in, in gun violence. And Texas is 
the Lone Star State in that regard. It's a standout state. And so at a time where gun violence is on the rise around the country, was it particularly wise to say this is a great time to deregulate um, the gun ownership? Now, you know, without licensing, without training, that training was important to me. Uh, I learned about the importance of, for example, locking that gun away and getting my kids familiar with uh, having a weapon around the home and teaching them basic safety tips to ensure that our our children aren't harmed. So uh, I have nothing against gun ownership, uh, but the irresponsible idea that, uh, and again, it was just to feed their base. It was just to right. encourage, you know, the the right right wing conservatives that people, you know, Obama and and his his prodigy won't take their guns. It was a problem that never existed, and now we've compounded the problem that in fact does exist. The problem is, in fact, gun violence and gun competency. I think, if anything, we should be seeing legislation that makes it easier for people to get access to gun training, not just access to guns. I agree. So, I mean, for the record, people should not have their guns taken away. No, people should not have their guns taken away. (laughs) Good, good. I know there's going to be a lot of people out there that are, you know, oh, if he's a Democrat, then he wants the guns taken away. And it's just like. Yeah, and and I get that that inclination. You know, I look at somebody like uh, my good friend Beto O'Rourke, who has taken a strong stance that a lot of people feel anti-gun. But he came out of, he's a representative of El Paso. And someone has to pay attention to these national tragedies and stop just simply moving on. Right. Um, and and he, you know, he took a hard line, a position against uh, gun ownership and 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 gun access, particularly these AR-15s and uh, other weapons that could cause, you know, a mass. That has been at the heart of mass shootings that we've seen around right. the country. You know that that is that is 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 a, is a concern, and I and I appreciate that someone has the the bravery to speak about it because that's sacrilege in Texas. Uh, but it, it, there is a, there's a line that we can walk between gun ownership, gun competency and protecting the second amendment. I'm a constitutional lawyer. I believe in uh, uh, um, our, our right to bear arms. Uh, but we need to do it in a way that makes Texas more safe, not less. All right. Agreed on that. Uh, second point to that is the, um, the issue of abortion. The issue of abortion, uh, I personally, I feel that women are being stripped of their right to um, to have an abortion or not. Yeah. Um, I sp- I'm, I'm, a big, I'm a big advocate for that. Uh, that I that I I do believe that these women should have their choice yeah. in whatever in whatever they want to do. Right. Um, don't get me wrong. I'm a, I'm a God fearing man for sure. whatever that means. And there's no but, conflict there. <laughs> right. And, and it's a false conflict. Right. Um, you know. My, my position on abortion has nothing to do with a bounty hunter law that allows people from outside of the state, outside of the country, people who have no standing uh, uh, in these cases to bring uh, lawsuits against families, against rape victims. Uh, you know, abortion is going to be a tragedy. Uh, and sometimes it, it will be a medical necessity. Sometimes it'll, it'll, it will have everything to do with the specific circumstances of the person who has to make the choice. But 50 years of precedent since Roe v. Wade, which remains the law of the land, says that women get to choose. Right. Uh, they, they say that it's a constitutional right. Um, so if we talk about the Second Amendment, we should talk about the first, which which includes our, our privacy rights. Uh, right. And women have a right to, to make medical decisions. Right now, instead of putting um, pitting each other against uh, each other in terms of our views and say, you know, that, that there's this idea that on the right, you know, um, we're protecting the unborn and on the left. Uh, uh, we're protecting women's rights. If we wanted, if we really cared about women's health, then we wouldn't allow 18% of our population to have no health care coverage whatsoever, including 650 
thousand children. If we cared about children, let's talk right. about take care of those six hundred and fifty thousand children. Let's pass laws to make sure that they have access to health care. Uh, we we don't legitimately care about children. Right. That's not that's not driving the policy. It's again, it's feeding our base. And I I I don't think it's fair that we continue to allow them to uh, change the narrative about that. Okay, you guys care about children and health care. Then why does Texas have one of the highest mortality rates? Not not in the country, but in the industrialized world, right? right? Particularly for black and brown women. And what what does this law do to help that? It doesn't. It exacerbates the problem because now these black and brown women have to get backdoor abortions, have to cross uh, county lines. And by the way, our government is sponsoring a clear violation of the Constitution. You can't just simply ignore Roe v. Wade right. and 50 years of precedent because it feels good to your base. It's It makes us the outlaws. Do you have... Um you know, maybe this isn't a question for on the record, but uh, <laughs> I want to know your view, man. The The Supreme Court of the United States kind of took a, 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 a back step. I think it was Sotomayor who actually is the only person who kind of spoke out against it. What do you think about that, man? I'm, it's I'm, disturbing to me. This is why yeah, I ask you. I'm really disappointed with the Supreme Court. Um, you know, I, I mentioned that the Attorney General's office has the opportunity to be a bipartisan position because it's a law office. And, you know, the Constitution it says what the Constitution says. Uh, we expect the United States Supreme Court to step up and enforce the um, case precedent and the, the Constitution in all 50 states. And because that, that, that court has been so decimated by a Trump presidency that was allowed to put, um, you know, these really conservative ideologues on the bench who continue to use that office, uh, that position, as, is, as if it's a political position, uh, we, we're faced with a, uh, with a Supreme Court that sat on its hands while women's rights are are laid waste in Texas, it's not okay. Right. I have a very cynical view of um of the road we're headed down, and I'll kind of bring it to your attention. Is, do, I mean, do do you feel like democracy is maybe falling here in the U.S.? I think it's taking some blows. I I, I think that we're going to win. Yeah. Right. I think they kicked a hornet's nest. Yeah. I think that that the same time they went after voting rights. Uh, in black and brown communities, they they undermined the rights of uh, the disabled communities. Uh, they they sp- sparked outrage among women. I think the groups are going to start to come together. They are starting to come together. They're going to organize, uh, and we're going to fight back. I think what you're actually seeing is the death. Instead of the death of democracy, we're seeing the death of the Republican Party. In this in this sense, that is now the party of Trump. Trump is living in a fantasy world that he still won the election and that he's getting back into office. Uh, now we have the we have the tendency to ignore Trump as a fanatical outsider. I don't think we should make that mistake again. Right. Pay attention to what he's doing. Prepare to fight. Uh, but I think we have the, the everything that we need uh, to win, and I think they're giving us the motivation every day. <laughs> right. I agree with that. I agree with that. Um, I want to finish, and I always finish the podcast with a positive message to the younger audience. Right, whether they're Republican. Um, whether they're liberal, what, whatever their ideal view is, right? What, uh, what type of advice do you have to the younger audience that's watching um, that is perhaps maybe losing hope in the idea of becoming what they want to become in life or wanting to get to where they're wanting to get? Um, what type of advice do you have for the younger audience? I grew up in, um, in America. I was born in 1983, and so I grew up in America that was in the midst of, of uh, a crack pandemic, a racial reckoning of its own, uh, and and they told me as a kid that I could be whatever I wanted to be. Now, my, my father was incarcerated. My mother was a teenage mom. 
um, and everyone focused on the, the uh, education. They said the policies may not be where you want them to be, and that's my message to the youth today. Policies may not be where you want them to be. Politics may not be where you want them to be, but you are literally the future. Uh, you have the opportunity uh, to to gain an education uh, and change anything in our system that you don't like. I, I I believe that, and because of that, I, I've been able to take on issues in education uh, that that bothered me as a kid. As a kid, they labeled me as at risk. I didn't know what that meant. I know what it means today, but they labeled me as at risk. Uh, and I wanted to work in the education system to close the achievement gap and provide more opportunities in our communities. I was able to do that. And out of that, I, I developed a new family, mostly Puerto Rican and Dominican, of, of, of young kids who are now in law school. And it blows me away because that means I'm getting really old. Uh, but they're, they're working on changing the world. I see this next generation that we just talked about, ages 18 to 22 in Texas particular, who are engaged in the system, who, are, who have access to resources, who, who will be the change that we want to see. And we see a new wave of young leaders coming along as well. Uh, I, I encourage them to get involved. Uh, you know, I, 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 I had a chance to work with some politicians that inspired me. I, I encourage those young people to join this campaign, MeritForTexas.com, show, show up for volunteers, uh, and, and really uh, uh, not be afraid of the future, but take hold of it. You are the future. That's a great message, Lee. I want to thank you for coming on. Uh, I know I know it wasn't an easy drive coming down from Dallas and and taking the opportunity to sit down with us and have this conversation, but I know it's an important one. Uh, and you're not only a light to the state, but I think a light to the world. You definitely have a positive message, and I wish you the best in your campaign. Thank you so much for having me. I want us to continue to have these conversations. Hopefully, I'll be invited back. I hope you're and back. And we can get into some of the, uh, the particulars. You're but always welcome back. Thank you again. All right, Ali. Thanks again. Yeah.